<laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? It is um, it's early, man. It's ten thirty on Eastern time, which is really the only time that we care about here in America, um, Eastern Standard Time. But we are joined by, um, you know, Mark in one of those flyover states that no one really cares about. Who, where he's at in Central Time, it is nine thirty. So um, we are joined by by the good doctor, Mark Wolfington. Um, Mark, if you're if you're not familiar with the show, for the record, um, this is just par for the course for every guest. Eric makes sure to make, give some sort of an insult before they say anything, so that wasn't particularly for you. That's just standard for the. For yeah, the show. I would have been Welcome. disappointed. Um, I would have been disappointed if there wasn't something. So. Yeah. Well, well, Doctor Mark is is not like you, Luke. He's not so sensitive. Uh, he. <laughs> Uh, but Mark is is seriously one of my favorite people. Um, just always uh, joyful, uplifting, encouraging, um, incredibly intelligent. Um, he actually sent me this book. I don't know if you do. You send this book to everybody. Um, I get it on my bookshelf. I haven't started reading it yet. But it's about Aurora University and how it got started, which is where you serve currently as a chaplain. Yep, and if anyone would like a copy of that book, please let me know, and we will get that to you. Yeah. Oh, real quick, real quick order of business. Um, Mark, on your screen on the right, you should see a box that says private chat and comments. You yes. want to see the comments. Part of the joy of this show is being razzed not only by me and Eric, but also by uh, people on the internet, like Jeff Krause. <laughs> Uh, who who uh, is probably insulted by my claim that no one cares about the flyover states, um, but that's okay. Well, no Mark, <laughs> it's uh, it's great to have you on the show. I'm I'm actually not sure how you and Eric met, but I have uh, a lot of history with you because mm -hmm. you had either the distinct privilege or the burden of having the summer <laughs> ministries team come to your church. I think. Every summer that I was on the team, so that's at least four summers. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife Kathy and I were uh, there in the early days of Luke and Lindsay, uh, so we either take the blame or the credit, whichever you know, however that works. Uh, Eric and I met at one of the triennials. Uh, twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, we we haven't. Uh, got together face to face recently but you know that's true for everybody so i'm, um, I'm just i'm sorry uh catherine asked is this book by susan palmer it is that's the one yep uh, and um for those of you who may not have seen it or heard about it uh susan palmer is a retired history professor from aurora university and she's written a book on the founding of mendota college Mendota College became Aurora College, became Aurora University. Uh, this happened in the 1890s, kind of in the second generation of uh, the Advent Christian movement, where uh, there was this tension between our belief that Christ is coming soon, but Advent Christian leaders recognized that there was a need for theological education, uh, a way to train ministers and missionaries. And it's the story of how um, I, I think some very courageous men and women stepped out in faith to start this school uh, when there were a lot of people arguing that, oh, no, we don't need a school like that. That's a waste of money. It's a waste of time because the Lord will be here soon. 
Mm -hmm. I think it's got some timely lessons for us in it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into anything else, uh, we we have missed, uh, typical for me and Eric, we have missed like the normal social pleasantry of having you introduce yourself to a bunch of people who might not know you. Ah, yep. I know that the Evan Christian circle is small, but we shouldn't assume that there are no strangers watching. So why don't you tell everyone just a little bit about yourself, your family. I know you have multiple positions. Um, so give us the basic rundown of Mark Wolfington. Well, if you don't know Mark Wolfington, then you're probably not worth knowing. That's what I've well, learned. Clearly, clearly. Um, <laughs> I'll keep the checks coming, Eric. Um, Let's see. Um, I am Mark Wolfington. I have served as pastor of the Church of the Highlands in the southwest suburbs of Chicago since 2003. Uh, along the way, I have been a bivocational pastor since 2005 uh, with 10 years at LaGrange Hospital as chaplain, or one of the chaplains, I should say, and since 2015 as the university chaplain at Aurora University. Uh, my wife, Kathy, uh, grew up in Baldwin, Missouri, in the St. Louis Advent Christian Church. Um, so her family is in St. Louis. Uh, our oldest son, Joshua, is a junior at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. Go Bears. Uh, our younger son, Jacob, is a junior at Lyons Township High School. And he is... Um, Figured out what uh, what the next step for him is. He he's a baseball player. Would like to play baseball at the next level. So he's talking with different schools and getting scouted a little bit. So uh, it's exciting. I am a native of the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and I now live in the same county I was born in and grew up in, uh, about twenty five miles south of there. Now, are you? I actually don't know this about you. Are you a lifetime Advent Christian? I am not. Um, I am a, a more recent um, part of the family, I guess you could say. When I was uh, a kid, my family sort of nominally went to um, St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Palatine, which is still there. Very liberal church. And when I got into high school, um, I started meeting some other kids who were a part of Willow Creek community church, uh, which actually started in my hometown. Willow Creek was a movie theater. Um, and in 1980, I saw Clash of the Titans there as a kid, uh, which was fabulous. I mean, just one of my favorite movies still. Um, Willow Creek, obviously, you know, mega church, uh, Bill Hybels ministry for a long time uh, there until recently anyway. Um, but when I started meeting these other kids from Willow Creek, there were two things that I noticed about them. They knew the Bible a lot better than I did, and my competitive nature didn't like that. <laughs> and the other thing was they talked about Christ as though they knew him, he was their friend, they had a relationship with them, and that was something I didn't have. Uh, so Willow Creek was really instrumental in me coming to faith in Christ. Uh, started reading the Bible and began to see some things um, that were different from what I was hearing in church. Um, uh, the best example I can give you, in 1987, um, the year I turned 16, my grandfather died. My grandfather was uh, a deacon in his church, faithful man, loved the Lord. And at his funeral, the minister said, Grandpa was in heaven. I had read in Scripture where Christ talks about the resurrection, 
and a day that's coming when the dead will rise. And I remember thinking, the minister says grandpa's in heaven, which, you know, sounds pretty good, but the Bible says something different. There's a disconnect there. I didn't, I'd never heard of the Advent Christian Church at this point, but I knew that my beliefs and what I thought scripture taught was different from, let's say, the mainstream or the typical Christian. Um, you know, I went to a, a Southern Baptist seminary, and Kathy and I still joke around how no one dies in the Baptist church. They go to be with the Lord. That, that's just how they refer to that, um, mm -hmm. which is, I love the Baptists, they're great people, all that, disagree with them. When I got to Aurora University, I had um, no, I, there was a sign out front that said, founded in 1893 by Advent Christians. I had no clue what that was, who Advent Christians were. But at an event on campus uh, called the Involvement Fair, where each of the different departments and student groups will have a booth or a table, basically trying to recruit new students, new members, um, I met two people. Uh, one of them being Jeff Thomas, who is Ron Thomas's nephew, uh, and Scott Carpenter, uh, Brent Carpenter's son, and hit it off with these two guys. Um, and they invited me to come to their church, the Aurora Advent Christian Church, that weekend. I did, and the rest is history. Wow. Um, short time later, the Friends Forever retreat, which has been a a big retreat here in the central region for about 30 years now uh, was held where uh, youth and young adults from all over the region come together for a weekend. Uh, it used to be in October. It's now been in November lately. Um, come together for a weekend. I met Dwight Carpenter there and I met a young lady from St. Louis, Missouri uh, that I thought, Hmm, it's uh, okay. Okay. Uh, a couple years later, I married that young lady from Missouri, uh, which was cool. And uh, Dwight married us and was a big, big part of our, uh, our early years, I would say. So that's how I came to the Advent Christian Church. Eric, it makes me so sad that because you are not and have never been a part of those, as you called them, un, you know, unimportant flyover states, you cannot share in the joy that I feel when I hear phrases like Friends Forever Retreat. Uh, and Dwight Carpenter. I, I forget how deep my roots out there go. And that I, I really enjoyed hearing that story just so that I could feel that connection again to all those wonderful people and places and events. That's great. Well, uh, I, just, I, I just want you to know, I was, making, I was making fun of the name of that retreat, it, but I wasn't going to say anything, but you brought it up. Friends Forever sounds a bit, I don't know, <laughs> sounds a bit funny. I probably wouldn't go to a retreat called Friends Forever. It sounds it, like something the Care Bears would come up with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the um, the history there, the context, I guess, when it started in the late 80s, Michael W. Smith's great song, Friends Forever, was, I mean, that was the big one. And uh, so it, it is a little dated, I guess. But, hold on, um, hold on. Does, Eric, are you familiar with this song? I have no he, idea what you're saying. I don't even know oh what a Michael goodness. W. Smith is. <laughs> All right, we need we need to pause the show for just a moment so that no, Eric, no, we're not pausing. I'm not gonna... no. Eric, just just sit back, relax, no. and listen. And friends are friends forever. If the Lord's the Lord of them, and a friend will not say never. 
Cause the well will not end. Though it's hard to let you go, in the Father's hands we know <laughs> that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. Does, that, does the name now make sense? Do you see? Do you feel it now, Eric? You want to go to the retreat now? I, he does. I, I know you. Oh, man. So, Eric, is this, this the is... part of the show where you ask all your silly questions? Well, when he kind of like skipped over the important stuff, like uh, Mark, what's worse, the first uh, trilogy of Star Wars or the third trilogy? Oh, I'm going, oh, I'm going chrono chronologically. That is a great question. Um, I would say the third trilogy um, over Christmas break, um, both of my sons were home. And they decided that they would watch Disney Plus. They were going to start with episode one and go all the way through. And basically, they didn't make it. They, they're like, Dad, this is... I said, yeah, I, I got you. Um, the prequels have grown on me um, because there are so many great memes. Uh, big fan of Obi-Wan and all the memes there that uh, to come out with him. Um. I, I like seeing Yoda again. I would have preferred Puppet Yoda to CGI Yoda. Um, but but Puppet Yoda can't do like a double Windsor backflip while swinging his lightsaber around. That's true. Yo, that's true. I don't. I those fight scenes in the prequels were legit. I loved those lightsaber battles. I could watch lightsaber battles all day. Um, Obi Wan versus Jango Fett is fantastic. Um, yeah. So the I, I don't. The prequels are okay. Uh, not original trilogy. The newer movies, um, I do like Rogue One and I do like Solo, which is kind of rare. The newer movies, um, The Force Awakens had so much potential and it just didn't, didn't connect. The second one is a mess. Uh, for uh, The Rise of Skywalker... J.J. Abrams had so much to try and tie up. I think he made a, a good effort at it, but at, at that point, it was there was a lot that just would have been tough to to draw together. So, now what about the Mandalorian? Where do you put the Mandalorian in in, in things? Um, the Mandalorian made me feel like it was 1980, and I'm in the theater watching Empire Strikes Back again. It's been fantastic, so well done. Um, I've always been a big fan of westerns, and um, Clint Eastwood, um, The Outlaw Josie Wales is one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen that one, please watch that movie. Um, season one, episode four of The Mandalorian is basically the movie Shane with uh, Gary Cooper. It, it's fantastic. I, I, I'm with you. I love The Mandalorian. I actually think that the television series that they produced um star wars produced including the 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 cartoons are better than better than all of the movies like if you put everything like if you compare all the movies together and all the television shows the television shows are far better because there's so much more character development and there's so much you see different perspectives it's it's amazing so they've really found something um, you, um, I don't know if Eric knew what he was doing by asking Mark Wolfington about Star Wars, because we may never come back to anything else for the rest of the show. Uh, but I do want to make a quick re 
remark because there was there's there was a slew of comments when Mark and I started singing so beautifully. Uh, but before that, Mike Alex said something that I, I don't want to be passed over. He says we need to put out people's theological stories of how they became Advent Christian. Uh, I think that's a fantastic idea, and maybe that's something that is already happening, and I'm just not aware of it. But if there's anyone watching who feels inspired, I think that would be a great project for someone else to do. So someone else do it. Yeah, <laughs> let the historians have it. Um, some of the folks watching this are have been a part of this, but uh, at the university uh, over the years, the alumni relations department has put together a storyteller series where they interview different alumni from different periods of time to talk about their experiences at Aurora College or Aurora University. And it's been fantastic. Um, there are quite a few of them from some, some big names in the Advent Christian Church uh, that I would, uh, if you want to see a good oral history, that's a great, great way to do it. The Storytellers Project. That's cool. Meredith Broadway uh -huh. says uh, the AC Witness actually has a featured article with, with someone with that very kind of story. So someone connected to the Witness needs to connect with Mark Wolfington because that story is worth telling. Well, a, I, think there's, I think there's a difference, too, because I wonder, Meredith, please correct me, but I read the recent um, article because they published it like on the website and they shared it on, on Facebook. And I read it. And it was from a dear brother, but it was more of like a, hey, this is why I'm Advent Christian, not not on theological grounds. It was kind of more like, hey, this is where my friends are. I was like, oh, okay. And it was nice to hear, like, oh, cool. Because um, there are certainly other places that you could land that do, that do accept conditional immortality. In fact, I actually read a recent article that the Baptist faith and message back in the late 90s was updated to allow for conditional immortality, which I had not realized. Um, so it probably depends on some of the circles that you run in within mm -hmm. the SBC. Um, and they would probably be most most in who we align with with other things. Um, but the Anglicans uh, accept conditional mortality as well. So um, but it would be a good good uh, way to figure out like, hey, how did you land here theologically? That'd be it. But now we're um, oh, go ahead. I was, I was just gonna uh, go ahead. go ahead. I was gonna say we're approaching twenty minutes. We should probably start moving toward our subject. Yeah. Well, considering we weren't quite sure what our subject was going to be, uh, Luke, we, but anyway, the original topic that we're going to discuss today was ordination standards. Um, but we kind of, we're going to, we're going to leave some room to discuss other topics as well as they might pop up. Um, and I don't even know why we asked you on for this particular topic. I don't know if it was because you were part of something, um, Mark. Oh, uh, I remember why. Oh, okay, yeah. go ahead. It's because he was making comments uh, on one of the episodes when that sort of came up uh, as a, as a side remark in a different discussion, oh, and uh, okay. he we were we were reading his comments and going he's we remarked you remarked how insightful they were, and mm -hmm. so at that moment we said well he should come on and just talk about that. So that's what happened is he was com making comments on another show that wasn't about that but had sort of a little rabbit trail over there. Yeah. And the uh, the interaction was so good that we wanted to bring him on. Well, I find most things that Mark comments on to be incredibly insightful. So <laughs> I, I um, do try to watch as frequently as possible, um, and I've enjoyed some of the conversations, even when I haven't been able to weigh in. So, 
Well, we appreciate that, Mark. So, ordination standards, man. Like, let's give everybody a picture. What are our, as a denomination, the current ordination standards? That is a great question. And um, I've been, I was ordained in 1997, and I don't know that I can tell you what our denomination ordinational standards are um, because they vary. Now, I've served in the central region and the western region. So my experience is kind of um, shaped by that. Um, my understanding is for, in most cases, although I know the Eastern region is different, uh, it's on a conference by conference basis. Conferences have a ministerial committee who are charged with uh, interviewing candidates and then approving or making recommendations to the conference board about who can be ordained and who is not. And then credentials are granted. And what I have seen is there's a big, um, big variety in that. And I, I was having this conversation with someone a few years ago. And I said, it seems to me like as long as you can preach good, you can get ordained. And they corrected me. They said, no, no, I think you mean preach well. I said, no, I, I know what I said. If you can preach good, in other words, if you can present the gospel or present a sermon, let's say, in a way that people are able to follow, you can get ordained. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think, and then part of this has to do with the way that we call pastors. Um, you know, the typical call experience of bringing a candidate and their spouse in for, say, a weekend maybe meet with the board or meet with a pastoral search committee and then preach to the church, maybe answer some questions. And that's how we, and then the congregation votes at some time. Well, that's okay, but that's a little bit like going on a call like that is a little bit like a first date. We're on our best behavior. We put our best self forward maybe that's not the most realistic or the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, you go on one date and then decide to marry someone. Now I love it first sight. Sure. But I think, especially since we're called to be in relationship and community with one another, I think there are some different ways we can do this. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we don't have any ordination standards across the board, right? Um, we have kind of, it's different based on each conference and, and Mike Alex brings up, um, they tried to do regional credentialing at, in the Eastern region, but that didn't really pan out the way that they were hoping or some were hoping. Um, so you have a conference. So within each conference, they typically have a ministerial committee, right? And that ministerial committee is made up of ordained pastors, ordained clergy and they have their own, each conference has their own standards, right? So, yes. yeah. So what does that, um, and, and you're saying for some, they just kind of look at the, um, whether or not this person can preach as to whether or not they will ordain the individual. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Although um, I have also seen, uh, to their credit, some pastors who 
were either reluctant or I would say hesitant to be ordained because they wanted to really um, think through their call experience, think through some of their theology. Um, you know, it's, it's not just an automatic thing. Well, okay, I'm done with school, whatever school looks like. Now I've been called to be a pastor, so I guess the next step is to be ordained. And so I, I appreciate that. Um, mm -hmm. Two people that come to mind that did that, that I would say really wrestled with that decision, um, are Jed Krause and Matt Mull. They'd been in ministry for a while before they took that step. Mm -hmm. Luke, what's your experience in getting ordained? Yeah, so I'm in the same boat as everyone else in the denomination where it's done on a conference level. I, I don't know how unique this is. Maybe it's not as unique as I think. I always like to imagine that I'm more special than I actually am. Uh, but I was, uh, I was actually called to the church without any credentials. And then over the period of the next <laughs> the face that Eric just made, maybe it is as unique as I think it is. Uh, and then over the course of the next two and a half years, I went through the process of first getting my ministerial license and then uh, my ordination. Um, and I felt like the process was pretty rigorous. Both times I had to fill out a rather extensive questionnaire, and both times I was interviewed very, very thoroughly. Um, shout out to, well, I don't know, is it appropriate for me to, to say specific names? There was one person in the, in, on, my, uh, on the ordination committee for the conference in particular who uh, – did an especially thorough job of vetting me, which I appreciated so much because it made me feel like this ordination means something. Mm -hmm. um, it's not it's not just a rubber stamp. So I I felt like the process was I mean, I, I have no complaints about it. I, I feel it was rigorous and vigorous. And uh, uh, I feel like my ordination has real meaning because it required something from me. Yeah. You know, I, in situations like yours, Luke, I you know, I wonder what happens in a situation where a church calls a pastor who's not credentialed and then goes before the ministerial committee and is like they say, no, this guy's not ready to be a pastor. This mm -hmm. guy's, you know, um, for whatever reason. Now what? Now what's the responsibility of the church? Um, because you have the church, you've you are um, you are a part of this conference uh, because you choose to be. So you choose to be part of this conference in partly for the purpose in which they ordain clergy and care for the clergy. Um, and then they say, Hey, your pastor isn't either prepared or for whatever reason, we're not ordaining him. I would say it'd be incumbent upon the church to say, Oh, I guess we need to find another pastor, you know? Um, so this is, this is where um, I'm going to be a bit contrarian, and I'll pull Mark back into the conversation. Um, Mark, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm playing devil's advocate to some degree, right? I don't, I'm not necessarily sure. taking the position, but maybe I am a little bit. Uh, biblically, as far as I can tell, the only um, clearly articulated standard that I see for calling elders or pastors, right, is on a local church level. Whenever Paul plants a church, before he leaves, it says that they appointed elders for that church. Um, 
what do you think is the value of any sort of larger bodies of oversight when it comes to ordination? Why shouldn't we just let each church call the pastor as they see fit? That's a great question and or a great, great position. Um, I know that in, I shouldn't say I know, I believe in the Southern Baptist Convention, that's how it works. You are ordained by a local church rather than an association. Um, I think the value of, say, a larger body is you will have experience and wisdom from the collective group, whoever that is, you know, other ordained pastors um, that would not be present in the local church in most cases. Um, Although not necessarily, I do. I have heard of some different Advent Christian churches that have uh, a number of retired pastors as part of the congregation for different reasons. You know, so there would be other ordained ministers that you could call upon in that local church. But um, by and large, I think you would miss some of that wisdom and experience. Uh, I had a, a conversation with someone about this. But a, a different conversation, a uh, different topic yesterday that we all have different blind spots or uh, I, I struggle to use the word weaknesses, but weaknesses in our own development as leaders, as pastors, uh, maybe areas of theology that we need to be pushed on a little bit. And I think that would be difficult in most local churches. Mm -hmm. Um but I don't want to diminish the importance of the local church. Mm -hmm. I know that just thinking about the Church of the Highlands, uh, I have a big range of people who would want to know about doctrine and specific questions. And then I have some other people that that would not be as important to them. Um, you know, doctrinal integrity, let's say, or uh, the other part of it is, and I, I, I suspect this is true in many churches. I have people who are Advent Christians because they've always been Advent Christians. This is what we believe. And I have other people who are part of the church because they like the church. They like the pastor. Okay, they've got these different beliefs, but really don't know what they are. They're, they're part of the, the community of the church, but they're not really Advent Christian in their identity or their thinking, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there is a phenomenal discussion going on in the comments uh, that I'd like for us to get to. I think before we do, the other question that I think naturally comes to my mind is actually to ask each of you in turn. Maybe we'll start with Mark, and then I don't think I've ever really asked Eric about this. What was your ordination process like? And looking back on it now, do you view it as a positive experience? Yes, I, I do uh, view it as a positive experience. When I came to the First Advent Christian Church of Tustin, California, which is now uh, Orange County Community Church, led by the Reverend Jack Mumford, um, doing a great job there. I was licensed in the Prairie States Conference uh, because that was something I had done while I was in school here, still living in this area. So I had been licensed for a while and met with the ministerial committee and had a, a very lengthy uh, application 
about doctrinal things, you know, some biographical questions, uh, questions about my testimony, how I came to faith in Christ, that sort of thing. And it, it was helpful because there were uh, men on that committee who'd been in ministry for a long time, one of them being Louis Granzi, uh, who I greatly admired, um, came to love in time, and others who'd been in ministry longer than I'd been alive. Now, the I also saw during that process the first kind of clue that we had some work to do in this area because the bylaws of the Southern California Conference at that time stated that a candidate had to be licensed for two years before they could be ordained, which is good. I, I think a two-year kind of probationary period is, is excellent. Or if they were a graduate of Aurora College or the New England School of Theology, that two-year requirement could be waived. Now, here's the problem. You guys may, may know this already. This was in 1996. Aurora College had stopped granting uh, the, the Bachelor of Theology degree over 20 years earlier. New England School of Theology became Berkshire Christian College, and Berkshire had closed 10 years earlier. So the ordination application needed to be updated, needed to be you know, modernized, I guess you could say. Uh, when I came here to Illinois um, and got on the ministerial committee, one of the first things we did was to look at the application, both for licensing and ordination. And a couple of things jumped out at me. It was asking for the candidate's um, education, which is good, including correspondence courses and night school. Night school and correspondence courses, I mean, that's straight out of the 1970s. And uh, I know a little bit of the, the context of this. When it came to doctrinal questions, there were more questions about uh, demons, spiritual warfare, and Satan than Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, and return. And I think the context of that, yeah, it was, oh, okay, we should ask some questions about that, but it, should that be the focus? Mm -hmm. One of the previous members of the ministerial committee uh, had some charismatic leanings, and that kind of thing was very important to him, and that kind of translated over into the application. So we updated that. We we looked at that and, and boiled it down to what are the essential doctrines of our faith and what are the secondary things? Because those secondary things, you know, I hope that we have some diversity of thought and opinion on that. And I, I have some other ideas moving forward, but I want to hear Eric's story too. Oh, well, that's good. That's funny. Uh, well, no one really asked me much about. I got feedback. Oh, what just happened? Uh, can you hear me now? Okay, that sounds better. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I got a single question about 
about demons. So that, in my uh, in my ordination, so I you know went and got licensed, and I was licensed for about I want to say a year or two, and then after that, you know, proceeded towards um, ordination. So there were kind of two steps in the process, and I got. I got ordained in the Heritage Amic Christian Conference, which is pretty much the eastern part of Massachusetts, central and eastern part, along with Rhode Island and part of Connecticut, I think. Um, and, you know, so Nathaniel Bickford was on my ordination committee, as was Andy Rice, who they sometimes watch the show, especially Bickford. And, you know, I had a, a long list of questions and writing out statements of faith. Um, lengthy statements of faith that were paragraphs long on on specific um, topics, and um, they put me through the ringer, man. Um, even before an interview or anything like that, I want to say for months these guys were grilling me with questions through um, group chats, um, emails, all sorts of stuff, clar- asking for clarifying questions, and it wasn't like a um, putting me through the ringer in a bad way, but really trying to flesh out, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And by the end of it, man, I, I felt so much more confident in um, what I believed. It, it was a very formative time for me. And I think that as we're ordaining pastors, that should be a key aspect of it. Right. And that doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. Um, perfect example. When I was sitting on, um, <laughs> Bickford. Um, when I was sitting on our conference board, we had an individual that was seeking, um, he was seeking credentialing and we gave him, he was passing a church he, and, and he hadn't been credentialed yet, but they were at, he was asking for communion privileges in, in order to, to provide communion. And my biggest thing was, well, what's his theology of communion, right? So what, what does he view as far as like are does is he um a transubstantiationist is he con consubstantiation um is he a memorial view is he a spiritual presence view does he have some other view like what does he think because i think it's incredibly important for um those who are administering the sacraments to understand what they're actually doing because i think it's something that you're going to be held accountable for so um there are a lot of things that we need to ask the question for that a lot of lay persons, like when they're calling a pastor, they might not ask that question. Um, I don't think your average everyday person, unless they have say a reformed background is going to ask, well, what's your view of the communion? Like what's your theology of communion? What do you think it is? Um, at least in my experience with, with your average everyday lay person. So, um, I mean, if they're Lutheran, they might have, they might ask that question or having a Lutheran background. So I think people just assume like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal, you know, whatever it is. Well, it, it is kind of a big deal. It, it is important. So um, I guess, you know, my, my big concern, Luke, is, you know, uh, you know, obviously you've been successful in getting ordained and going through that process. But what about the churches that do call a pastor and and they don't get ordained because here you're you're a part of a conference and and you're relying on them to ordain and give credentials to um, ministers. And if, if you guys arrive at a different conclusion, um, what's the outcome? Do you remove that pastor? Do you buck the conference? And if you're going to buck the conference on that, then what's the point in even being part of the conference? Um, what value is there? Are you, are you being a faithful member to your conference? I don't think you are. 
Um, yeah. And if you're not being faithful, then oof, what is you know what are the implications there? So um, thankfully now, that didn't that didn't work out in a negative way in your context, but it could right. have. No, you know you're right. It could have it could have gone terribly. Uh, I I like to view my hiring as like the best mistake the church ever made. That if you look at it objectively, it was not. It wasn't. It, I think from any outside perspective, it would have been seen as an unwise decision. But the Lord was gracious, uh, and he. Uh, uh, I I certain I certainly am thankful that they did it. Would I have done it if I were if I were like on a deacon board of a church, and had some 28 year old kid with little ministerial experience and no proper credentials. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I'm really glad they did. I think so far it's working out decently for them. I'm certainly uh, Eric. I, I don't know if this is something that you would want aired publicly, but I have ever since talking to you last week, I have been so enamored with this analogy of young pastors being uh, puppies who need to be housebroken. <laughs> <laughs> it's true man i tell my church all the time like thank you for allowing me to pee in the corner and clean up after you know like yeah. that's that's just part of that's part of being young you know and and you have to have a church that's going to be willing to if you're going to hire a young pastor and you know they're lacking experience like my mentor glenn rice was hired at 21 years old right like we look now you know people think that i'm super young as a pastor at 30 years old I mean, could you imagine if I was the pastor at 21? So I think that when you hire, when you call a pastor who um, who has some of that youthful exuberance, you know, what you have to bear with them and in, in what comes with it. Well, I think, I think, too, I look at my experience and obviously it's my hope and prayer that I've been a blessing to the church. But there's also something to say for the fact that they – Part, you know, a huge part of the way that I've learned to be a pastor is by doing it. And mm-hmm. that that whole process has been hugely beneficial for me, which is not to say that doing it the other way would have been bad. I mean, there, there are plenty of great pastors who come in very, very qualified. And mm-hmm. that's a great thing. But then in some ways, I think, well, is it is it necessary? Does it does it necessarily have to be the rule that it's always going to be qualification before calling? Or is there a time and a place, a situation where you can call someone to the position and qualify them uh, as, uh, you know, put them through the qualifying process as part of the position? Maybe I'm just very blessed to be where I am, where it worked out well. Um, And I guess I just got to give credit to the people around me who, who helped that to happen. Now, there is so much in this yeah. discussion in the comment section. I, I, I say let's, let's broach it. Well, why, why don't we let Mark choose where we start? Why don't, Mark, why don't you take a moment and just sort of peruse some of the things that have come up and pick the thing you want to you wanna take I'm not on. afraid like you, Luke. I'm willing to talk about you know, the, you know, the ordin- ordination of women. Uh, you know, last night um, I read Catherine's uh, post on the Advent Christian Voices blog about – her experiences in seminary and was really impressed. So Catherine, thank you for that. I didn't, uh, didn't get a chance to reach out to you yet. Yeah. This ordination of women, um, historically that has been part of the Advent Christian church. And I think if I were to pull members of the church, the Highlands on this question, um, some would be absolutely adamant. Oh no, we don't ordain women. Well, yes, actually we do. 
you maybe don't know anyone who's been ordained, but that's actually something that we do. And I think conferences and individual churches that don't at least attempt to answer that question, wrestle with scripture and talk it through, uh, are going to struggle in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so um, I'm, I can hear Luke texting in the background. I just texted him to tell him to put headphones on because yes, Luke, there was some echoing there. Um, so there, there are a couple things uh, that that are that are related here, um, Mark. So one is the w- women in ministry ordaining women, and two, um, you know, Palma mentioned, you know, her husband becoming a pastor at twenty-two, lacking experience and all that, and some suggest that that shouldn't happen. Um, so there's preparation, but also, you know, we don't have time to cover everything. So let's try and do do a little bit at a time. Do you think it's it's beneficial to um, put put uh, people in ministry um, at such a young age, 22, 25, 30 years old? Well, I was 24 uh, when I graduated from seminary and was called to California. And like Luke was talking about earlier, I don't know if, if I were on that board, if I were a deacon in that church, I don't know if I would have called me looking back on it now. At the time, I thought it was because I was so brilliant and, you know, God's gift to the church. Um, It's funny how life and ministry have a way of humbling us uh, like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the first time I had a brilliant idea that any saved, born-again, spirit-filled believer would, of course, go along with because it was clearly the right thing to do. Uh, And I shared that with uh, the board and not only got shot down, but violently opposed, um, you know, being told that if you try to do this, we will go to the conference and stop you uh, kind of thing. The man who said that is a good friend now. So uh, we, Mm -hmm. we overcame that, but that is a great question. I think in many cases, and there are exceptional individuals in many cases, most of us at, 23, 24 years old, lack the wisdom and the life experience to pastor well. Mm -hmm. But we have to start somewhere. Yeah. It's one of these things where... Especially in in our denomination, Mark, where we we lack a lot of associate pastor positions. So so we don't have a lot of availability to give... um, to, To give folks who are going through seminary who have recently graduated seminary an opportunity to serve and and grow. Like I remember my first, you know, when I was at my last church, I was a lot like you, like some, you know, like you were at that age where, you know, you come in and you think like you're God's gift. You think that of course, any, any spirit filled believer is going to go along with this. And then when they don't, you're like, Oh my goodness, what in the world? And, And you have all these thoughts that come through. But I think that whether or not you bring on a young person to serve as an associate pastor, youth pastor, or, or as a senior pastor, the church has to understand that there are going to be um, some growing pains for that individual and for the church. And I know at least in talking with, with folks who've come before me, the practice in many churches within Advent Christendom was 
um, yeah, put the young guy in that church that nobody wants to go to, mm -hmm. um, the hard, the really hard church. And what you end up doing is you end up doing more harm than good. You harm the church and you harm, um, that, that young pastor who might leave the ministry altogether when what that church really needs is a more seasoned pastor who knows how to navigate difficult people and relationships and, you know, placing a younger pastor in a place that's going to be more gracious, that's maybe more mature in how they view um, their role, right? Like they're not just hiring a pastor to be the hired hand, but they're calling a pastor to be a, a member of this church and to teach, right? And, and, and to pray and to do all of these things. Um, with, that in, with that in mind, um, you know, one of the things and I've mentioned it here on this show, and I, and I appreciate Catherine bringing it up and, and Catherine, someone I went to seminary with and um, appreciate all that she has to say. And I definitely recommend checking out her articles on, on Advent Christian Voices. Um, you know, she brings up the, uh, the inconsistency between conferences on whether or not they will ordain women. And, you know, we are largely in a, uh, a mix of egalitarian and complementarian um, churches and pastors across our denomination. Uh, and I think that in some instances we've handled that fairly well. You know, it's, it's a place that we don't have infighting so much. Like it seems like in some places on social media and the web, like if you have churches that have a female pastor that, you know, the hardcore complementarians will say, well, that's not even a church. Um, I'm a complementarian, but I'm, you know, I don't think that a church isn't a church because they have a female pastor. Um, but how do we navigate these? Um, how do we navigate well the ordination of men and women when we disagree on the nature of whether or not women um, can or should be ordained and be pastors? Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's a, a tough thing. And uh, I want to back up just a little bit. I have heard either older pastors, uh, not recently, thankfully, say things like, well, you know, these young guys got to pay their dues. And so inexperienced new ministers are sometimes placed into challenging churches. And then those folks leave the ministry and we wonder, boy, where'd they go? What happened? Uh, I knew of one church that had run off the last three pastors that they called who were now not in ministry. And they would tell you, well, we just had a, a run of bad luck. No, your, your church is a pastor killer. You, you've got to mm -hmm. figure out the, the issues that are there and address them. And I think that that's related to what you've brought up, Eric, we need to intentionally have these hard conversations about what does it mean to be an Advent Christian pastor? What do we expect of ordained clergy? For me, my number one question is, is this person called? Mm -hmm. And there are ways to discern that. Uh, that has less to do with, um, you know, their gender, their education, although I, I think that's important. Um, we need to, this is the kind of thing that needs to take place um, at the triennial level, at the regional level, the conference level, um, and I think in local churches too. What, what do we, 
when a church was without a pastor, I think they should intentionally study scripture, pray, and talk through that process of what does it mean to be an ordained pastor? Who do we want in this position? Because over and over in scripture, the Lord gives us requirements for leadership. Paul does this in the pastoral epistles. Um, some of my favorite uh, Old Testament passages are where God gives Moses the requirements for the king of Israel. Here's what your king is supposed to do. And if, as you study the Old Testament, you see that the kings that did that, by and large, were successful and blessed. The problem being most of them didn't and reap the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, um, how do you think, you know, I know you mentioned, you know, we have to really look at what do, what do the scriptures say about what a pastor should be? What are the qualifications? How can you discern a call? Um, you know, but to get, cause I think we don't talk about this enough more, you know, openly and honestly about, you know, the best practice in, in ordaining uh, women when we have those who, who don't think that women should be ordained. Right. So we've long held a, a, a position where we allow for both views with our denomination. And, and I'm assuming we're going to continue to have those views. So how do we navigate that? Well, um, like, like I personally, I, I would expect that if I went before and if, if Luke and I went before a ministerial committee, and um, Luke's Luke's uh, complementarian. I'm complementarian. He's a bit more broad in his application than I am. Um, but if we went before that ministerial committee and they asked us our position, and it was filled with egalitarians, I would expect them not to ordain me. Um, in fact, I would suggest that if they did ordain me, that they would be violating their own conscience um, on on the issue. Uh, because essentially you're sending me to go, you're ordaining me to be a pastor, knowing that in my church that I would not be supportive of, of raising up women for the pastorate or for an eldership. Right. If, um, if I can interject really briefly, but I think this Eric is one of the places where your mentality rightly or wrongly is very different than I think a lot of the Advent Christians who would be in that position, which mm -hmm. is that for them, theological Liberty is in some ways the ultimate rule. So despite the fact that you, if you were in that position because of your theological conviction, might say, well, that's a violation of conscience, they wouldn't see it that way at all. They would just see it that in, in some ways everything is non-essential, and so it wouldn't be a sticking point for most Well, that means you should be able that. to – well, under that auspice, you should be able to ordain someone who's a Muslim, right? Like, man, well, they, they kind of – whatever, man. I, I thought like, about it's that. Like the, it's like we're the hippie denomination. Um, we'll never rain peace and love. Yeah, I, I blame the boomers for our current uh, crisis. No. Um, that was for okay, Justin boomer. Nash. We talk about boomers a lot. Um, one of the things that I had thought about in, in, in preparing for this um, and thinking about our discussion about Christian character being the test of fellowship, um, I know a woman who is very faithful to attend worship services. She's faithful in prayer. She is faithful in her daily life of living out her beliefs. 
she would be an excellent candidate for ordination because of our lack of standards. Now, what I should tell you is this lady is from Pakistan and she's a Muslim, but by our very broad definition of Christian character, while she doesn't drink alcohol, um, she's faithful to her husband, she goes to pray five times a day, she meets at the mosque every week, she's a faithful church member in that sense. I don't know that anybody would advocate for that, but you know, to illustrate Eric's point, um, and I, I think, Luke, you are onto something that for most Advent Christians, I don't know that we would think through all of the implications of what does it mean if we ordain someone who holds views that are contrary to what, what we hold to. I, I like again, to think there's myself, a difference. There, I like there's to a think difference. Of myself, <laughs> I like to think of myself as the Sacagawea to Eric's Lewis and Clark. I speak the native tongue of Advent Christianity to my good friend Eric. <laughs> Well, well, here, you know, well, here's the difference. Like, I want to point out, there's a difference between your theological. Um, we'll just use we'll use soteriology, right? The the how is someone saved? And we have a very wide tent when it comes to that, which is which is okay. Um, but you can disagree on soteriology and still ordain someone. But when it comes to like what I view as the egalitarian and, and complementarian issue. You're talking about who's leading the church, right? Like, and, and to some extent with soteriology, you're talking about knowing how someone comes to Christ. Um, how is God working in the midst of that? To me, that's that's very different than who does God call to lead the church? And, and I think we all agree that if God lays something out in his word as, as his standard, as his law, as a command, that disobeying it, is sin, right? Like, so, um, you know, we, we gotta be, we gotta be, we can't conflate those two as, as same theological issues. I think they're very different. We're, um, we're approaching 1130. So Mark, if it's all right with you, I wanted to give you the last word and then to use a baseball analogy, Eric and I will bat clean up Excellent. Uh, so that we're not making you tardy for anything. I appreciate that. Well, Eric, uh, one of the things I, I thought of um, is a lesson that I learned from the great theologian Obi-Wan Kenobi, who said, only a Sith deals in absolutes. And, <laughs> which, of course, is an absolute statement. I hope that as we move forward, this will be another topic of conversation not just on this episode of this particular blog, um, but in churches, in conferences, regions, and even at the national level. Because mm -hmm. unless or until we're willing to talk about them, nothing's going to change. And I'm not interested in talk just for the sake of talk. Well, we'll have a little forum on uh, ordination standards, or we'll do a focus group on women in ministry, or something like that. Um, what is what's the next step? What is the follow up to this? Mm -hmm. And I hope we can we can get to that point. Mm -hmm. Thank you thanks, so Mark. much for coming on. Oh, go ahead, Eric. I was going to say thanks, Mark. It's good yeah. to have it's good to have the good doctor in. Uh, the I doctor is in session. Right. Yes, and uh, I'm going to go shovel out some snow. So I will look forward to seeing you guys next time.
It was great seeing you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Take care. Take care, man. Dude, it's, Mark it's is so hard Mark's one of bet. my faves, man. It's He's so one hard of to my faves. Up after that, because there's so much that came up that we could talk about, and I suspect most of it will have to be reserved for another day. Uh, any remarks from you before we try to put a bow on this thing? Uh, well, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's a lot to discuss and tease out. You know, I do appreciate the the um charity that we show you know regarding like you know these these issues or you know i don't want to say it's an issue just just the the differences here right um you know i'm i'm not trying to convince anyone of of my perspective and your perspective perspective regarding the role of of women in ministry um i do think i'm more concerned personally with um the implications regarding ordination you know um you know if we if we take the if we accept both views, then I think it's, we have to figure out a healthier way to ordain women and ordain men or in a better way or, or, or in a better, um, a better, better way to put it would be how to ordain people who, who take a stark difference on such an important theological issue. Um, because you are talking about the heart of, of who is called to be an under shepherd of the church or under shepherds. And, and I think that's incredibly important. And I certainly, you know, I don't want to be put in a position where, you know, a, a, you know, a woman is coming up, you know, if I were on a ministerial committee and a woman's coming up for ordination and I know the denominations stance, I couldn't in good conscience, um, one, I wouldn't be able to recuse myself because I've been appointed to this position or elected to this position. I feel like I have to, you know, I'm, I'm called to weigh in here. Right. Um, and then two, uh, I wouldn't in good conscience be able to affirm, but you know, they could go to another conference and get affirmed. And I'm not saying, Hey, they shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that I couldn't violate my own conscience. Otherwise, according to Paul, I'd be in sin. Uh, all helpful thoughts. I think the only thing I want to say before we close is, uh, as a strident complimentarian, I'm going to go against type here and I'm going to have a shit. I'm going to give a shout out to two of the ladies in the chat section, uh, Catherine and Meredith who identified maybe about 20 or 30 minutes ago that a lot of this conflict really comes back down to our, our identity crisis as a theological entity that so much of what we're wrestling with really ends up coming back to, we cannot agree on what we believe. And I'll just say this, this discussion of ordination standards, I think is important, but it, there will be no resolution of this issue until we deal with the bigger problem. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And there have been a steady stream of solid. Wait, articles. wait no, I did. I did not. I know it sounded yes, like did. I did. You, I you was cut. trying to say shout out and the, the, yeah. the, you said a naughty word. What's the you word said, for you, the vowel? You, the vowel came out wrong. I did not mean yeah, to say that you word. Totally. You said the curse word for poopy for making poopy. I heard it. Um, I actually did that. I did that in a sermon a couple weeks ago. The same thing where I, I was saying, shout or something like that uh or shoot and the vowel came out wrong and i totally swore in front of the whole congregation mm -hmm. um yeah oh catherine's asking the good questions uh if you recused yourself based on your conscience would you be able to 
would you be able to then recommend someone to the ministerial committee who could affirm, or would that go against your conscience? I'm curious. I, I don't think that I could, again, I'm not on a ministerial committee and, and this is why, you know, I, I was asked a couple of years ago to serve and, and I just, and I couldn't in good conscience. Um, you know, I, cause I did think about that. I prayed about it for like two months. Like I really gave them my answer at the last possible moment. Um, but I, I look at my positions like, okay, I'm responsible for, you know, ensuring these people are called, um, to the ministry and, and if so, ensuring that they're prepared and if they're not prepared help, if they're called, but unprepared, helping them get prepared. Right. Like, I think that's the role of the ministerial committee. So, um, I would view as my position, like, I, I don't think that I could in good conscience recuse myself. Like it's not like if you think of like a judge, right? A judge who has stock in Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola comes before their, their, um, you know, before them for a lawsuit. Yeah, of course they're going to have to recuse themselves, but we're not talking about having stock in a, in the stock market. We're talking about, uh, spiritual matters in overseeing, um, the ordination of people who are going to call, who are, who are called the serving God's church as under shepherds. So, um, and I totally understand if people see it differently than I do. Um, you're, you know, everybody's entitled to be wrong. Um, and, and I'm used to other people being wrong all the time. So <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But um, so if we're all over the place with our stances on these issues, what in the world binds us as Advent Christians? This is my question. Meredith bringing in the good questions, man. There has been, have you been reading, Luke, um, the articles that have been coming through Advent Christian Voices as a steady stream in the last two months regarding our identity or at least the polity issues with our denomination? I haven't read all of them, but I've read enough to get the, the, what's the term? Uh, I see where the train is heading. So it's mostly been, it's mostly been Tom and I, um, Tom Logry. And, and I appreciate the things Tom and I land in, in a couple of different things, you know, just in our personal conversations, not, not necessarily what's been put out on ACV, but, um, you know, we're really trying to put out what Tom and I have talked about, like the articles that we have written and in our hope is that people would engage and, and think critically about these things. We're trying to be charitable. Like I, like I, I wrote an article saying, you know, Christian, Christian character is not the only test of fellowship and tried to make a case that, you know, it's actually, if that's the only test of fellowship, which is in some church constitutions for Advent Christians, that the basis of church membership is, is um, Christian fellowship. One, I think you're being disobedient to the word of God because I think the word of God speaks to more than just Christian um, character, but also you have to consider what people have in mind, what is Christian character? So I think you have to like really articulate what is Christian character, right? And, and what are those things? Because for some Christian characters is not drinking alcohol. It's wearing a, a tie to church. It's, it's not smoking cigarettes. It's, it's not watching um, certain kinds of movies uh, or television or listening to certain kinds of music. And then you look at the scriptures and go, uh, this ain't in there, man. <laughs> like, like our view of Christian character is, is not anywhere close to what the scriptures have to speak to. So that's, that's a huge challenge for us. So that's been a deeply held belief for Advent Christians for the duration 
of of uh, since we've been together. And so that's been at the core of who we are. And then, you know, we're kind of at a place where many that I've talked to agree with my what I've shared and say, all right, now what? And and I don't know, Luke, I, I don't know. I, I want to make one more remark before before I give you the last word, because uh, I missed it earlier. It was something that Meredith said. She said uh, maybe like 40 or 50 minutes ago, so many of our identity problems, she thinks, have come out of our theological educational vacuum. And I just want to say this. For years, decades, I have heard people decry the loss of Berkshire. And I get it. I do. But I will tell you what, we should not wait for the resurrection of a proper theological institution to educate our ministers and leaders. Shout out to Lou Going, who earlier this year just said, you know what, I'm just going to start teaching Greek and theology for free on Zoom. And I'll tell you, Lou, Lou Going is killing it, man. Since then, I've actually picked up two preaching students. These are just one guy who's at a different, at another church in our conference, and then one guy who's not actually in an ever Christian church right now, but was raised in one and is pursuing mm-hmm. ministry. And it's like they have um, solid training in the exegetical aspect, which is the most important aspect of preaching. Are you actually, is your point the point the passage is making? But they have no training or experience in how do you actually construct and deliver a sermon. And so instead of waiting to go off to seminary someday, they just came to me and said, like, hey, we know this is something that you have more experience. I know this is something you have more experience in than I do. Can you just show me what you know? Um, and I'm not I'm not in any way denigrating proper formal institutions or, or teaching or degrees. But at the same time, it's like, OK, if there is an educational vacuum in the denomination, then let's start filling it and let's not wait for there to be a formal institution to start doing that work. Yeah. Well, and, and there is now, right. So, so with, with MTI, with the minister training Institute and, and um, I'm a huge supporter of Berkshire Christian college. I'm a huge supporter of MTI. I, I appreciate what they're doing. Um, you know, most people who are probably watching our show know the president um, Glenn Rice, um, I know him pretty well, served under him for, for over three years. Um, real quick, real quick, let me clarify. Meredith, I was not saying that you're one of the people who has done that. I'm saying that your point about an educational vacuum is absolutely correct. And I think for a long time that some some of us um, have chosen to pine about days of the past rather than finding a way forward, even if it's not quite as formal as it once was that that was the only point i was making i wasn't trying to criticize you i think your point was legitimate well you know one of the things i learned at gordon conwell when i was there um i took a church i took a class on church revitalization which was incredibly helpful um for those who who are able to take that class i'd highly encourage even if you're not a student there you might be able to audit it um it was very helpful in, in framing the purpose of revitalization. I remember one of my profs saying, Hey, you know, it's um, a church really needs to revitalize every five to 10 years, just based on how rapidly probably where you live, you know, how rapidly it changes and how rapidly churches change, but churches don't do that. And and our denomination is the same way where we have to address the, you know, address the issues that we see, like acknowledge them. Um, and, And that includes the, 
we can't just talk about how great the old days were. Um, because honestly, if, if, if we're being a hundred percent honest, um, the good old days weren't nearly as good as we like to think of them. Um, you, you don't have to be a psychologist or, ha- or take a semester in, in college on, on psychology to understand that we really romanticize things over the course of our lives, that, that the days of yesteryear were far better than, than today and even tomorrow. Um, we need leaders uh, at every level of our church and denomination. They're going to tell our people, listen, tomorrow will be better than today. And the reason tomorrow is going to be better than today is because tomorrow we will be one day closer to the return of Jesus. So yesterday wasn't any better um, than, than tomorrow is going to be. Stop talking about, you know, stop like romanticizing the past. We need to move forward. Um, and we have moved forward. The denominations put a lot of effort, as has Berkshire Christian, along with pastors and leaders throughout our denomination who have surrounded Berkshire, who have surrounded the MTI program and saying, hey, we think that this could be profitable for raising up leaders within our churches in a cost effective way. Um, we have pastors like I think of right now, like I have twenty thousand dollars student loan debt. Um, so I get 20K student loan debt plus all the money that I used to get an education with my GI bill. So I had the GI bill, man, and I'm still using that joker. Um, and I got a bachelor's degree and, and I'll finish my master's degree this summer. And then moving into a doctorate after that, like we're going to have pastors who have 20, 30, 40, maybe even a hundred thousand dollars worth of student loan debt with, with churches, um, you know, I don't know what the what the average pay for pastors are in our denomination, but I think the last time I talked to 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 Justin Nash about that, like it's somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars. It might even be less than that. Um, dude, pastors don't get paid a lot in any denomination. In our denomination, it's even less. So um, the path forward that Berkshire and MTI have taken in trying to prepare men and women for the pastorate. Um, in a cost-effective way is going to pay off dividends. So if you're not already supporting that, um, I would encourage you to go to, I think it's mti.com or .org or dot something. You can probably figure it out. Um, call up, call up ACGC, call up Berkshire and ask them how you can support, whether it's just in prayer, maybe it's finances, maybe your churches can give. I give personally. I know my church gives, gives collectively to MTI listen, if we want to help fill the vacuum, this is, this is going to help train the pastors for tomorrow. And not just that, they're also doing stuff for lay leaders, missionaries, church planters. Come on guys, stop, stop complaining about yesterday. Do something about it. One of the things I appreciate about my brother, Eric is he is, uh, I don't know whether to say he's more like a bee or a termite, but he is one of the busiest people I know. And it's, and it's, uh, not just cause he's bowling every night or, you know, there's different kinds of busy. Eric is, is, uh, obsessed with, uh, building up the church. And so I appreciate that about him. I always, I always feel called to action, even if he doesn't say it just by the way that he lives. Brother, we need each other. We need each other so much. And, and, um, you know, Meredith right now, Sharon, Hey, you can get scholarships. Dude, we can pay for this thing, man. Um, I mean, my church just like we just passed something at our official board um, and we haven't really announced it to the church yet. But those folks who who sent a call in the ministry in our church, like we're going to give scholarships if you're a member of our church um, to, to help pay for it. And um, 
because we think it's so important. You know, I remember my first board meeting, man. Um, you know, there were, you, you know how like every year, every church and every pastor gets something from um, Berkshire Christian. They get stuff from this organization, that organization. Well, literally like my first week at Hickory Grove, I got a letter in the mail from Glenn Rice, the president of Berkshire Christian asking for donate. It was just the yearly appeal that they do. And I thought it was kind of funny because like, that's the church that I left is the church that he pastored. Right. So like he was my mentor and he's like, well, anyway, like I remember taking it to my board, man. And like, Hey, this, you know, I did like a little write up, like what is Berkshire? What does this money go to? And I remember just sharing with them, Hey, this is what Berkshire does. And someone stood up in the board meeting and said, um, we have not given to Berkshire at all, like ever, or, or at least no one could recall that we ever did. And they said, um, from our remembrance, including Eric, all three pastors have been have benefited from Berkshire Christian College. Either they've attended there or received the scholarship to go to Jordan, Gordon Conwell, um, which I received. And they said, we've been helped mightily by this and we've not contributed anything. We need to start contributing. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you how much they decided to give, but it, it was it was um, heartwarming to hear the support. And, and I would just encourage other pa- other pastors to take that to their church, other churches to do the same thing. Um, you know, I'm not a big institutional guy. Like, I don't think you have to trust inst- institutions. I trust people and I care about people. And I have that connection with, with Glenn. I have that connection. Mike Alex, who also co-hosts on our show, who's an avid commenter. He's the chairman of their board. Um, the, the folks that have been a part, like I know most of the, the directors of the, of these little cohorts that they have. Um, these are top notch folks, man. Like I, like I think like most of these guys could be professors at seminaries. Most of these guys could be professors at Bible colleges. Um, it's not perfect. They're trying to figure stuff out, but these are our folks. These, these are the people that we are united to in our shared denomination, our shared faith. And, and they're really doing the hard work of raising, um, or, 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 um, Poor, uh, Training pastors. You're making an important point. I just need to uh, send my condolences to Pama Neal, who is suffering from autocorrect right now. <laughs> she cannot <laughs> type the word she wants. <laughs> uh, um, so Palma can express like how challenging it is, you know, with with Ed, you know, having to pay for that, and you know, I don't know um, if they had to take out student loans and whatnot, but you know, um, you know, everybody knows, like, you, you if 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 you don't realize that we do have like a student loan crisis within our country, and I'm not saying that they need to be forgiven or anything like that. I'm just saying like, we have more debt now than we did 10 years ago, Never mind 20, 30 and 40 years ago. Well, I can tell you that um, that same crisis is happening within the local church as well with our pastors. So, you know, um, you know, here, here are a couple of ways. Luke, what do you think are a couple of ways churches can help pay for, um, or, or support theological education or training of, of future and current pastors. You got to have something in mind. So I think you tend to think much in, in a much bigger picture sense of like, how do we institute programs? How do we provide funds? How do we create systems? And I'm thankful for people like you. I'm a systems guy. Where, where I, I tend to give more of my energy is um, as uh, formal education becomes more expensive and therefore more unrealistic for certain people, uh, or at least, it, if not impossible, maybe 
there will be seasons of life when it's not possible. People might not be able to go right away. Uh, I think one of the best things that churches can do, and this is on a church level, but also an individual level, uh, is to treat education as important and not just something that those institutions do. So it's a matter of uh, uh, treating learning, whether it's about uh, obviously we, we never stop learning about scripture, but also leadership, preaching and teaching, like whatever, whatever your thing is that you do for the church. If there's more that you can learn for the benefit of the church, or if you can create opportunities to teach others, um, then we should be embracing those things. And we should not outsource the responsibility, especially for theological education, you know, to the people called professor with all the letters in front of their name. Those qualifications are valuable, but let's not limit our idea of theological or any other kind of education to the institutions outside the church. The church should be a place of learning. Absolutely. And I I also think um, that we can. uh, Thank you, Mike. Eric thinks big picture because he has a big head. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think those who go to seminary or Bible college don't necessarily have to even be pastors. Um, so I think that, you know, the local church could benefit of leaders within their church who might not be called the vocational ministry, but even just like bivocational ministry within their own church, right? Like there's no reason you couldn't have elders on, um, in your church who are being trained theologically professionally. Um, I, I think that's a benefit. And the big thing that I've learned from, from seminary, like to me, it's not just the it's not information transfer because honestly, if it was just information transfer, I'm a self learner. I can read the books and I can listen to people talk like that's super easy. I listen to podcasts all the time and and lectures. I love it. The benefit is the wrestling with certain ideas, the hat, the getting the tools. So essentially you have to look at Bible college seminary and, 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 um, and, and whatnot as as you're putting more tools in your tool belt. And as society and culture changes, the world is changing, we need more and more tool belts or tools on our tool belt to navigate the sea change that's in front of us to proclaim the gospel. Um, it's one of, like it's one of the reasons you know I said I said I'm finishing up my master's this summer and I'm looking at a couple of different doctoral programs, um, doctor of ministry programs because I see how those programs could give me the tools to navigate, you know, um, how to do discipleship better in my church and in other churches, helping other people um, and, and, and all this other stuff. So um, it's just getting more tools for the tool belt, man. And, and we need that. We need everybody getting more tools that when we come together and look at the house that we have to build, um, we're not asking the carpenter to do the plumbing and the plumbing to do the, the plumber to do the carpenter carpentry. I mean, it's just not going to work out well for us. So um, the more people that have more tools, um, we can really accomplish the mission of God in a more effective and efficient way. Uh, Mike, one one quick comment to Mike before we close this thing. Mike, the dumb students need professors too. One of the worst things you can do for a dumb student is to give them a really smart professor. So don't think, don't think that your challenges in that area should stop you from being a professor. We need uh, JV professors for the JV students. That could be you. Uh, we don't need more bad professors. I had, dude, I had this, um, I did have a bad, I don't want to say they were a bad professor, but they, um, I didn't have a good experience with them. Cause I thought, I thought they were really nice. Like they were just a very, they were very gracious, very loving, very caring. Um, but 
when when they would do their lectures, it was actually on the, on a class on John Calvin. Um, and, and like my first, my first, um, my first, what do you call it? Uh, semester at Gordon Caldwell, man. I told you I did the church revitalization class, but I also did John Calvin in, in the Swiss reformation. And dude, like I legit, I found out what that, what that professor was using as an outline. Um, and it was a book by Bruce Gordon. Um, trying to find it on my, it's on my bookshelf somewhere. So the, the, the Bruce Gordon, um, biography on John Calvin was it, man. Like that was the only, like, and it wasn't even a recommended textbook. The recommended textbook of course was the institutes of the Christian religion, which I think whether or not you're Arminian or reformed should read it. It's just so formative, but we had to do, we had to do selected readings from, from the institutes, but essentially all the biographical information came out of this, which was great, but it was just so boring, man. Like the lectures were so boring, so boring that it was just, we need, we need engaging professors and we have one. Gordy Isaac, Dr. Isaac at Gordon Conwell is a phenomenal professor. I took, I took um, Martin Luther, um, a class on Martin Luther with, with Gordy. And it was a phenomenal class. The way he lectures, he goes in and out and speaking in German, which is always fun. Um, it was just, it was really cool. Uh, my two highlights from this whole episode, which was a fantastic episode. I loved having Mark on. We're actually two of the most recent comments. First, Mike referred to your verbal autocorrect, which I will be referencing as much as possible in the future because that's that is wonderfully accurate. How is how is verbal? What do you mean? Your idea of a, a great Christian is handy, Manny. Because <laughs> you keep talking about tools. Uh, yeah, yeah. So wait, what do you mean verbal autocorrect? And I want Catherine to share like, uh, what what's the crying emoji for, or, or like laughing crying emoji? Does she? I'm wondering if Catherine agrees. Um, because I loved that professor, and I don't want to call them out. I loved that professor. I just didn't. I just didn't think they were good at at professing. <laughs> I gotta I gotta run because I got Greek class. So let's go off there, and I'll I'll uh, uh, answer your question about verbal autocorrect. Folks in the chat, wonderful discussion today. We so appreciate all of you. We'll be back next week. Mike, Alex, my better half, will be back to help Eric out. We'll be back to our normal new time, which is 1 o'clock Eastern. And I won't even try to tell you what it is in your time zone because it's confusing. <laughs> it's very confusing. Take care, guys. We love you. Um, yeah, God bless you. <laughs>